morning, church. Morning, church. There we go. You're awake. Merry Christmas. It's good to have you here this morning. Good to have you here this morning. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 19. Um, Before we jump into things, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this season, this time of year where we can be reminded that you have cared for us so much that you sent your son into this world to to reconnect with us in a new way, to be light to us, to dispel darkness. To understand us. To die for us. To raise for us. Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would be full and alive in our hearts. That you would teach us and mold us through his word. It's in and through Jesus' precious name we do pray. Amen. Again, turn to the book of John, chapter 1, and we'll be verse 19 to start through 28. We're actually going to be looking at two, uh, two passages that, are, that I think are, are connected but, but are kind of different in John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And so they said to him, who are you? We need an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. We're going to stop there. We're going to pick up again in verse 29, but we got to get our bearings. This is, I, I think, still part of, of John, our author's introduction. 
Uh, as I've been saying through Advent, all four Gospels have what we would call Advent stories, Advent stories being the arrival of this notable person, and this notable person who John has been describing for us for the first 18 verses in his beautiful prologue. We're, we're no longer in the prologue, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're not in his introduction. I think John's gospel really begins uh, in verse uh, 35 when Jesus starts to call his disciples, which we'll get to in a couple weeks when we come back in 2020. Um, but what we have seen up until this point has been pretty exciting, at least I think. We're introduced to this notable character as the Word. John calls him the Word. God's speaking into this world. The world that were the word that was pre-existent, the word that was with God in perfect relationship, the word that was, in fact, God Himself, Creator. I'd say that gives him a pretty uh, high status just in that first verse or two. And then John shifts and calls him life, life that we all long for, life that we all desperately need. And he, and he uses light as an example to explain to us what it means to have life. Light comes in and dispels darkness. Life comes in and dispels wickedness. Life comes in and, and, and resets us, if you will. Not only does light come in and reset us, but light comes in and gives us life. Christ comes not to just be here with us, but Christ comes to redeem us. Christ comes to, to make us his children. For those who would believe in his name, those who would receive his work, receive what he has done for us, we're told in verse 12 that we have been given the right to become children of God. Not because of man, not because of the will of man, but because of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. To give us grace upon grace. Grace, as we talked about last week, instead of grace. Grace that compounds upon itself. Grace that's unendable. Grace that can't be bought, can't be repaid. John, our author, has been using John the Baptist as this barrier for us. To keep us focused on the, the person that we need to focus upon. I've been talking about John the last couple weeks. We saw, we saw his testimony in verses Six to eight, and then again in in verse fifteen. In verses six to eight, John John wants us to focus on this light. He says, I, "I'm not the light, but I but I came to tell you about the light, and I want you to make sure that you're focused on the light." And in verse fifteen, he, he says he, he says, I, "I want you to know that the guy who I'm going to talk about, while he's coming after me, he really is before me because he was before me." Maybe his ministry wasn't before mine, but, but he was before me because he's the, the pre-existent Christ. So John has been used in John to keep us in track. And now we're going to focus a lot more of our attention on this John. 
Verse 19 comes up and it says, this is the testimony of John. Again, not John our author, but John who we call the Baptist. He says, and this is his testimony. I think in order to understand this passage, we really do have to get the context of what's happening. We're told in verse 19 that the Jews sent the priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask, who are you? Right? The Jews there were told in verse 24, I think it's 24, uh, that the Jews are actually Pharisees. Now the Pharisees are a, a, a section of the Israelite people. It's just a, a subsect. We call them sects. Sects. The Pharisees, according to Josephus, who is a first century Jewish historian, numbered probably about 600 people. Now, when we read the Gospels and we read how many times uh, Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, we think there are so many Pharisees. They're just, it must have been most of the people. You know, we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and maybe we think, oh, oh it's, it's kind of like Republicans and Democrats. Pretty much everybody fits into that category, but that's not what it is. It's not really even close to what it is. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were really only kind of the teachers of the people, and they're a small group, and and the only difference between them is not, not that it's a new religion or a new thing, but it's rather just a particular focus. The Pharisees' focus was the law, the Sadducees' focus was the was the was the temple and the worship in the temple, right? And these groups were small, really comparatively small to to the rest of the people of Israel, a couple million maybe people of Israel and there's 600 Pharisees. And so we think that they're this big group, but they're really not. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit. What we learn by John telling us that the Pharisees sent the priests and the Levites is really kind of unusual. See, the priests and the Levites, they're the people who are supposed to lead the people of God into worship. And through the history of Israel, the priests and the Levites were actually the most important, uh, the most important leaders of the people. Moses, after all, was a, a Levite. Moses and his, and his brother Aaron were Levites, and they were the leaders of the people of Israel. And for a time, they were the ones who led. And then God brings judges into the story, and the judges kind of lead the people for for part part of part of the time. And and and, and but the, the Levites are really kind of still there. It's really not until King Saul that we get this kind of division of power or division of maybe not power is not the right word leadership. And part of Paul, part of Saul's problem was that it was power to him, not just servant heart servant hearted leadership. So the priests and the Levites really should not ever be told what to do. They're supposed to stand as a different thing, leading the people, not listening to the Pharisees and not certainly going on investigative journalism, which is kind of what's happening. So we have this kind of unusual situation that's kind of arisen because of the role the Pharisees have played. It shows us the Pharisees are... Or, or at least somewhat important and have some sense, some sense of, of clout within the community that the priests and the Levites would go. But, but it also tells us something about the tension that the Pharisees bring to the story. Now, again, I've been saying throughout our, our time in Advent that we have to remember 
that the Gospels were not written to people who have never heard the story. The Gospels were written to people who already know the story. This is solidification of understanding, and it's helping us to better understand and to then preserve the story. And so when John references the Pharisees in verse 24, he knows that his people that he's talking to know the tension that was going on with the Pharisees and know that that kind of brings that understanding of what's happening into the, into the conversation. And so the Pharisees, they send the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, John, who we call the Baptist because of the other three Gospels, not because of John's Gospel, because he leaves that out, which we've talked about. He says, who are you? Who are you? And then in verse 20, Jesus, or John, excuse me, John responds really unnecessarily. He's, he conf- it says he confessed, he did not deny, and confessed that he was not the Christ. He didn't just say, I'm not the Christ. He overemphasized the fact that he's not the Christ. And we might go, why? Why is he, why is he doing that? Wouldn't, wouldn't it just be sufficient just to say, just to say I'm not the Christ? Well, probably would have been sufficient, but there's all this background and, and noise from this background that kind of plays into this. If you go back like 100 or so years, 150, 60 years before Jesus is born, there's this thing called the Maccabean Revolt. And, and this is just a, a, to help us understand what has been happening for the last like 400 years. So from Malachi to, to Matthew, Malachi to the New Testament, the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's like a 400-year period where, where there's no writings that we believe are inspired by God. And we, we also believe that there's no speaking from God to his people. It's a period of silence. Okay, we call this the intertestimonial period. And what was happening during this time was the people were waiting and anticipating the coming of the anointed one, which we call the Christ. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. So they're, they're eagerly awaiting this because when he comes, everything is going to be set right. And for them, oh boy, and for them... That means they're going to be freed from oppressive governments and they're going to be freed from their sins. But really, it's that first one. That's what they focused on. Even though the Bible is very clear that it's not just about freedom from oppression. Really, that's the minority of the story in the Old Testament. It's more about the freedom from my brokenness and the freedom from my sinfulness that we find the Christ coming to to fix in the Old Testament. But their focus is is oppression because the people of Israel are oppressed by one nation after the next nation after the next nation. Really, it's quite ridiculous. You have the Assyrians who oppress the people of Israel, not to mention all the, the all those who oppress them in, in the in the book of Judges. You got the Assyrians, then you got the Babylonians, then you have the Persians, then you have the Gre- the Greeks, and then you have the the four the Greek the Gre- the Greco-Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, excuse me divided into four groups, and, and they oppress the people of Israel. Then Rome comes along, and, and they oppress the people of Israel. It's like, it's like when is this ever going to end? So naturally, this is what their focus is. But that's not really what the Bible teaches. But they're, they're, they're standing around, and they're just, I can't wait until this guy comes. Right? And so about four or about 160 years before Jesus is born, there's this thing called the Maccabean Revolt. Maccabean revolt, where a couple guys, Antichus, Antichus and, and Joseph Maccabee, they, they, 
they kind of come to the people and they're like, we got to get out of the oppression of this of this nation. The the Seleucids, I think, is the, is the group that were oppressing them at the time. And they come they come in. They're like, we got to we got to get we got to stop this. This is ridiculous. This is we got to end this. And people started going. They might they might be. They might be the Messiah. They might be the anointed one. They might be the ones coming to release us from this oppression. And, and as time goes on, the reality is, is they kind of went, yeah, God has sent us. Because aren't you going to rally more people around you if you think if, if you think that I'm sent from God? Right? Like, that, that's natural. That's an understandable thing to happen. Like, if I just come out and I'm a crazy person, let's conquer these people. Let's free ourselves from this way bigger army. You just like, go away. But if I come and I say, God sent me to raise me up. He raised me up so that we can win. Oh, maybe. Right? Because Israel has this long list of his, a long history of these singular characters raising up, being raised up by God to release them from bondage. So naturally, this is what's happening. And sadly, the Maccabean revolt ends in Israel being defeated. Doesn't really go well. And so you have this and other stories. That's just the most notable. Other times where people kind of rose up and said, I'm the Christ. God sent me. And so the Pharisees, they send the, the Levites and the priests, and they're like, hey, is this it? Are you it? And the reason why they're coming to John, and I've said this a bunch of times, is John, he, man, he was a superstar. People, like, really clicked with John. He comes in, he's calling the people to repentance, and people are like, yeah, we're on board. Now, he had his enemies. He's not universally loved. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were like a little weary with him. Herod has him beheaded because lots of stuff. Anyway, digression. He's this really popular person. And, and John is not actually preaching anything new. He's not preaching anything 100% new. He's maybe saying it in a new way, in, in a better way. And he's, he's preparing the way for the Lord. But John is not preaching something new. Baptism had been around. Now, baptism is not found in the Old Testament. There's ritual cleansing, but that was like literal cleansing. It was for, for hygienic reasons. God says, if you have leprosy, don't touch anybody because leprosy is contagious. So keep that out of here. Go out of the community. Don't, don't give everybody leprosy. The people of Israel were clean. That's why we call it clean and unclean. If you get the flu, wait until you're done with the flu and then take a bath. That's, that's good. It's good hygienic rules. We know this today. They didn't in the ancient world. So they had these cleanliness rules, but they were about physical cleanliness. John comes, and, and he's part of what well, we believe John is part of a group called the Essenes. They lived out in the wilderness. They were basically monks. They were, they were ascetic, meaning they were very physical. They very physically, not physical like weightlifting physical, but physical like, like I'm going to express my belief in my actions, right? And so they would go out in the wilderness, purposefully make themselves impoverished. They would eat weird things. John was eating locusts and honey, and he was wearing weird clothes. He's just an odd person. It just fits. Anyway, they had been talking about baptism. They had been calling the people of Israel to, to repent and turn from your wicked ways and, and, and be cleansed. And that baptism, exactly like we do it today, was a representation of what they were deciding to do. 
But John comes along and he starts preaching this in, in, in a new light. In the light that there's going to be something that comes that fundamentally changes this. And the people ate it up. And so he's gaining all this traction. So the Pharisees are like, all right, we got to figure this out. Because if he's the Christ, we got to decide if we're on his side or not. So they ask him, are you the Christ? And John is like, I need you to know this without any question. I am not the Christ. Not it. I have come to tell you about him, to make way the path for him. I am not the Christ. I am not the one who is anointed by God. He has a purpose from God, but he's not the Christ, not the Christ that they're asking about. What then? Are you Elijah? What's interesting about this is that Jesus, actually, Jesus himself tells his disciples that John was Elijah, but just not in the same way. They said, you know, they, they're talking, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and they're, and, and, and they're like, when, well, is, is, isn't Elijah going to come? He's like, he already has. It was John. But it's not that Elijah is coming reincarnate, he's not being reborn. It's, his, it's the spirit of Elijah, the spirit of, of, of holiness and, 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 and making the path ready. And this is what Jesus is referring to. And the, and the Pharisees, that's not what they're referring to. They're like, you're like really Elijah, reincarnate. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to elevate him up to make this very obvious you know, show with a lot of pomp. They wanted to make it obvious. They wanted to do something special. So John's like, no, I'm not him either. I'm not. That's not me. Are you the prophet? It's important that we get the in there. It's the prophet, not a prophet. John is most certainly a prophet, but he's just not the prophet. The prophet is Christ. The prophet is Christ. So no, 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 no. And, and, and it's very important for John, our author, that we hear John the Baptist saying, I'm none of these things. I'm not the light. I'm not the one who is important. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. And I'm not the prophet. I am none of these things. I am only a humble servant here for one purpose. So they say, what? What's your purpose? My purpose is to make straight the way for the Lord. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, we have to make sure we don't misrepresent what's happening here. So John is in the wilderness and he's calling the people of Israel to repent and to be baptized so that Christ can come. But it's important that we don't actually say so that Christ can come. John goes out in the wilderness, calls the people of Israel to repentance, baptizes them, not that once there's a certain amount of holiness in Israel, Jesus can come, but rather so that they would be prepared when Jesus came to receive Jesus. It's important that we don't misunderstand. You do not become good enough, then Jesus can save you. You are saved by His blood and His word so that you can be changed by Him. The order is very important. But John calls the people of Israel to repentance just exactly like Wes and I talk all the time about being prepared when you come to church. 
Anybody ever have a fight before church, on the way to church? Right? Like, you don't have to raise your hands. I don't, I don't mean today. Right? You, you're fighting with your spouse. You're fighting with your kids. You're fighting with yourself or your radio or whatever it is. You're just in a bad mood. And you come into church, and it's just, ugh. It's hard to listen. Ryan, Ryan's just, his voice is droning and annoying, and, and that might be true every week, but but then there are Sundays when you when you turn the radio on, you got you got your your praise and worship music on, and you're singing and you're excited, and you get into church, and it's just like, oh, you know why? Because you're ready to receive His blessing. And this is what John is doing. He's like, people, be ready because it's coming. It's great. The blessing of God is about to be here. And what it seems, at least it seems that John fails, but I don't think that that's actually true. Right? Because the people are all shouting at the cross, crucify him, crucify him. But it's, what, 40, 50 days later when Peter stands up at Pentecost to preach the, preach the first sermon in the church and 3,000 souls come to know Jesus? That's partially John's responsibility as well. So then they ask, so why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? Verse 25. And the reason why they ask this question is really quite simple. If, if you're not a special person, why would you even call us to baptism? And so I think John's like, man, it's like you're not listening. I'm getting you ready so that you can receive what Jesus is bringing. I'm getting you ready. He says, listen, I... I I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know who comes after me, whose sandal is not worthy to untie. I'm baptizing with water. I'm baptizing with water, but there's somebody else. There's somebody else. And we pause before we get to the good stuff. Right? Purposefully. There's somebody else that I want you to know. And my witness, what I am doing is only purpose, its only purpose is to point you to him, to, to make you aware of him whenever he shows himself. You know, by the way, he's standing in the midst, I think. There's one among you. Then, then verse 29, jump to verse 29, it says that the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. I keep having to to rephrase myself every every week. Two weeks ago I said the mic drop moment was whenever we were told that we can become children of God. Last week I said the mic drop moment is when John finally uses the name Jesus Christ. And, and this week the mic drop moment is now we finally see the arrival of Jesus. For 28 verses we've been hearing about who this person is and hearing about what he's going to do and hearing about his, his character and his attitude and what his, what his role is. And now we finally see him arrive. And John's response is awesome. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. I'm going to keep reading, but we're going to come back to that So. Keep your finger there because that's, I think, the most important verse. It says, this is, this is he of whom I said, John is speaking now, this is he of whom I said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for, 
For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So Jesus is coming after John, so that John, in the work of his baptism, might point to him. Verse 23 or 32, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So what we learn here is that, that the baptism that we read about in the other three Gospels has already taken place, probably the day before. We'll get into why, but probably the day before. And at the baptism of Jesus, the heavens open up. There's God the Father. Jesus is in the water, coming out of the water. And here comes the, the Spirit of God descending, and it kind of looks like a dove. And the Spirit descends upon Jesus and stays on him. And so John, he's recounting this. This is, who, this is what I saw, he says, verse 33. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So, there's two things that we have to quickly think about. Number one, does John not know Jesus? The other gospel writers pretty clearly show us that when Jesus comes to be baptized, before the Spirit descends, John knows that Jesus is the Christ. They're related. Mary, when she finds out she's pregnant, she goes to Elizabeth, John's mom, who's six months pregnant, and in the womb, John leaps for joy. So what's happening here? Is John, our author, just mistaken? I don't think so. I think we see, because later on in the Gospels, John actually has kind of a, a crisis, a kind of a crisis of thought. He's like, he's like, oh, I think Jesus is the Messiah, but, but is he? So he sends his disciples. He's like, are you the Christ? I think it's the same thing here. I think John is like, yeah, this is what I've believed for all of my life. This, my, my cousin, or whatever he is, relative, is the Messiah. But I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. He hasn't really done anything special up until this point. He's just a normal average guy. And then he baptizes Jesus, and, and, and God's like, let me, let me show off a minute. He's like, okay. So it's not really just John's witness. Now it's the witness of God himself. Which I think probably escalates it just a little bit, doesn't it? But what's more than that is it says that the Spirit of God descends upon John, or upon Jesus, excuse me, and, and stays on him. And John was told by God that this would be the sign that who this happens to doesn't baptize with the water like he's being baptized, like he's baptizing with, but baptizes with the Holy Spirit, with, with God. And Jesus doesn't actually physically baptize anybody in his ministry, but he commands his disciples to go baptize. Uh, all nations. And that baptism is a water baptism, not because water is somehow special, not because we bless it and it becomes something different at the point of baptism, but because it represents the, the spiritual baptism that goes on in your heart as you accept Christ. That what Christ gives you is not just water baptism. It's not a baptism of you saying sorry, but it's the baptism of the Spirit of God who comes upon you, who doesn't erase you and make you something different. But molds you and change you and transforms you. There's so many times when I, have, when I have prayed to the Lord because of my sinful heart that 
Lord, why is it that you haven't just changed me? Because it's so much more beautiful that God is creating in me a new clean heart. It's so much more beautiful that the process is happening in my life. Because it really doesn't bring glory and honor to the Father if all he's really doing is making more robots. And so the one who comes after John, he doesn't baptize with water, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. But we have to go back to our verse, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. You know, people who study the Bible scholarly, scholars who study the Bible, will read this verse and they'll scratch their heads. They'll scratch their heads. And this is, this is the type of verse that makes some people think that the Bible is untruthful. Let me explain. There are times, there, there, are, there are two type of critic, two types of critics of the Bible. The first type of critic is one who's read it once, who doesn't actually know what it says, and really doesn't have any right to say they know what it says because it's a really big book with a lot of stuff in it. People who will make claims like, oh, there's some, there's some discrepancies. One, one being, uh, who kills Goliath, right? David kills Goliath in, in, uh, in Samuel. It says David kills Goliath in Samuel. But it's Goliath from Gath. But then in, in 2 Samuel, I believe it's 2 Samuel, there's another Goliath who is from a different town who is killed by one of David's men. And so they go, oh, the Bible's not true. Well, but if you read the Bible properly, you find that there's no discrepancy. But this is the type of verse that makes you go, but wait a minute. They've read the Bible. They understand what it's saying. And perhaps there's a debate here. They come to this and they say, well, how does John possibly know that Jesus is the Lamb of God? The one who's going to be sacrificed. Well, maybe because we believe that the Gospels were written after the fact and, and, and the author knows that you know the story, he's just putting the words into John's mouth. That's not what we believe. We believe that in this moment, John speaks prophetically. That John doesn't maybe know exactly what he's saying, but says it anyway because God is speaking the Lamb of God, the one who will be slain to take away the sins of man. John gets it right. John's focus is exactly where it should be. It's not, John is not confused. He is not saying, this guy's coming to rescue us from Rome. He's not saying this guy is coming to do anything other than die for us. To be the perfect sacrifice. The sacrifice that's not just, it's not just a sacrifice. Loved ones, it's not just a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. I'm not entirely sure you heard me. It's a sacrifice that takes away your sin. The very thing that drives a wedge between you and the Father. Christ comes into this world not to be a baby in a manger. Not even to be a good moral teacher. Not even to really just be rejected by his people. But he comes into the world to redeem us. To save us from our sinful nature. To save us from our brokenness even when we don't actually know it yet. 
that his sacrifice 2,000 years ago was for you. For you, for, for us, for all of us. That his life was given so that I might be free from sin. So when we ask the question that we've been asking throughout Advent, who is this notable character? Yes, we are thankful that it's the pre-existent word. We praise him for being in perfect relationship with the Father, for being God himself, for being creator and sustainer. And we're thankful that when he comes and we reject him, he doesn't just say, all right, your choice. We praise him because his his sacrifice was to save us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the Lamb of God comes into this world to be sacrificed to take away our sins and to redeem us back to you. It is in your precious and holy and worthy Son's name. Jesus.